When we talk about our classic diseases, the autoimmune diseases, we think about autoantibodies and uh, self-reactive B cells and T cells. As these monogenic uh, diseases were being discovered, it was clear that the cells and, and the cytokines that were involved were primarily actually more on the innate side of our immune system. That's Dr. Dylan Disanayake, a staff rheumatologist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a transition clinician scientist at SickKids Research Institute. He's our guest on this episode of Around the Room, looking at auto-inflammatory diseases. Welcome back. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Janet Pope. How are you, Janet? Good. And hi, everyone. I'm glad to be back on a podcast. I, I missed you dearly, so, so uh, glad to see you again. So before we get to our guest, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a bunch of interesting topics. Uh, we're going to be working on an episode on Sjogren's disease, and we're going to be having some episodes on clinical pearls. If you have questions you'd like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account. That's at CRASCRroom, or by email, and that's info at room.ca. For our clinical pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. Okay, so that's it for housekeeping. So on to our guest. Dylan, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to see you both. So as an adult rheumatologist, I have to admit that I don't see a great deal of autoinflammatory disease, or, or probably more likely I'm missing or mislabeling a lot of autoinflammatory patients that I actually am seeing. So I think I need a little bit of help in learning some of the basics before uh, Janet grills you on the, the real stuff. <laughs> So, so maybe we can kind of set the table here. Can you give us a sense of what actually defines an autoinflammatory disease and how that's actually distinct from an autoimmune disease? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is a relatively new term. Um, it's less than 25 years old. And it was first coined to, as you mentioned, uh, differentiate autoimmune diseases from this new class of diseases that was coming out around the late 90s or so. Um, and really the distinction lies in the part of our immune system that is felt to be contributing to the, the, to the pathology. When we talk about our classic diseases, the autoimmune diseases, um, we think about uh, autoantibodies and uh, self-reactive B cells and T cells. And as these uh, uh, monogenic uh, diseases were being discovered, it was, it was clear that the cells and, and the cytokines that were involved were primarily actually more on the innate side of our immune system. And so uh, in 1999, Dan Castor and his group um, presented this term called auto-inflammatory to make this distinction that we're not really talking about B and T cell problems as much, um, but it's more kind of neutrophils, uh, monocytes, macrophages, and the, their products, the cytokines that are driving the pathology in these diseases. I will say, though, that since that time, the lines have become much more blurred. So there's definitely innate problems in some of our autoimmune diseases, and we also see uh, features of autoimmunity in some of these autoinflammatory diseases. So it's not quite a black and white picture as, as it was originally described. Okay, great. So how should I actually group or arrange the different autoinflammatory diseases in my head to make this broad and kind of evolving topic a bit more approachable like what are some basic kind of groupings that i can hold in my head that to to fill in as you teach me about these diseases i'm an immunology and kind of biolo biological pathway type person I, I think there's a lot of different ways to to group these but i like to think in in that sort of a realm 
Um, and if you think about these diseases that way, um, it, it kind of groups uh, also by the modalities of treatment as well. So the way I kind of think of, about them are there's the IL-1 mediated diseases, um, what some people refer to as the inflammasomopathies. Um, then there's uh, the interferon-mediated diseases or interferonopathies, which is quite distinct in terms of both clinical features as well as what's driving the disease, of course. And then there is um, a, a third category, which um, for lack of a better term, some people are calling NF-kappa-B-opathies. Uh, these are diseases that tend to be driven perhaps more by uh, cytokines like TNF-alpha, um, but it's a much more heterogeneous group and, and it kind of uh, overlaps with with the other two groups. That's really fascinating. So I, I hadn't actually heard that that general breakdown. Can you are you able to kind of list some of the diseases that fit under those three major headings? Yeah. So the the best described are probably the inflammasomopathies or those IL one mediated diseases, and the classic one for this is familial Mediterranean fever syndrome, uh, which is driven by genetic changes in one of these inflammasomes called the pyrin inflammasome, which drives excessive IL-1 production. Uh, so familial Mediterranean fever falls under that. Uh, another one that we, we kind of uh, keep an eye out for commonly is cryopyrin-associated periodic fever syndromes, or CAPS syndromes. Um, and so th that's another uh, in inflammasome that's overactive and producing extra IL-1. Uh, on the interferon side, um, there's, a, there's a number of them. Um, some of them are related to defects in proteasomes, so things like Candle syndrome uh, you may have heard of. Uh, not so much in the adult realm, but in the, uh, in the pediatric realm, SAVI uh, syndrome, which stands for Sting-Associated Vasculopathy of Infancy, uh, is another one that comes up. Um, Acardi Gutierrez would also fall, fall in that category as well. And then with the NF-kappa-Bopathies, like I mentioned, it's, it's much more heterogeneous, but um, some of the monogenic forms of Bechet disease, like haploinsufficiency of A20, uh, would fall under that category. So when we're thinking about these, would it also help if we were going to say the not just the phenotype of the patient, but potentially the first line advanced treatment? That's exactly one of the one of the advantages, I think, in, in my mind, to grouping in this way. Because if you can, even if you don't have a clear diagnosis, if you can at least categorize a patient into one of these baskets, it gives you a sense for what type of treatment you might think about. So uh, if it does seem to be uh, an IL-1 mediated disease, of course, uh, blocking that pathway with drugs like anakinra or canakinumab um, might be useful first steps. If it's more of an interferon picture, however, um, we sometimes uh, resort to JAK inhibitors now as they become more readily available. Um, and for some of these diseases, there have been um, really nice outcomes with, uh, with some of the newer JAK inhibitors. And then the NF-kappa-Bopathies, um, again, it's a little bit more heterogeneous, um, but at least for some of them, TNF blockade um, is, is a reasonable first-line thought, although, it's, again, it's not uh, clearly a single gene mutation in the TNF pathway, so it might not be a full response to that. And, and to drill down on that a little bit more, can you actually kind of give us a sense of the phenotype for each of these categories or even how you do a proper auto-inflammatory disease history to separate them out clinically? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest distinction, um, I think, to make is between the inflammasomopathies, those IL-1-mediated diseases, and the interferon-mediated diseases, because those cytokines, uh, IL-1 versus 
the interferons actually drive different processes in your body, which um, then manifest as the signs and symptoms of the patient. So IL-1 um, and downstream of that IL-6, for example, are very good at driving acute phase proteins. So you'll see your CRP shoot up very high. You'll see your serum amyloid level, if you're able to measure that, will go very high. Um, and then uh, these cytokines also drive production of cells from your bone marrow. So the white blood cells, the neutrophil count are, is often elevated. The platelet count can be elevated as a result. Um, so some of these very kind of inflammatory features um, in the blood work can point us in that direction. And then just knowing some of the diseases that fall into these categories as well, um, we can think about some disease manifestations that we um, might group in this category. So for example, I mentioned CAPS syndrome under this uh, uh, umbrella term of inflammasomopathies. Um, CAPS comes with a neutrophilic urticaria. And so when we see a patient who has a neutrophilic uh, dermatosis, neutrophilic urticarial lesions, uh, it makes us think that this might be in that realm of, of IL-1-mediated diseases. If you, if you compare that to interferon-mediated diseases, um, first of all, the skin involvement is often different. Um, uh, it's, it's often more like a vasculitic picture, things like chillblains. Um, you might think of more of an interferon-mediated picture. And then also the interferons don't drive the CRP and the serum amyloid level um, up from, from your liver. So um, when we have patients who, who look quite unwell and they have inflammation, they have fevers, but the CRP isn't as high as we would expect, um, that makes us think about uh, interferonopathies. And then the other interesting thing is um, that uh, some of the more common diseases that I'm sure you guys see, things like lupus and, and dermatomyositis, have strong interferon pictures as well. And in these monogenic interferonopathies, sometimes we get features of these uh, diseases as well. So the presence of autoantibodies, for example, um, makes us think that this might be an interferon-mediated process. NF-kappa-B-opathies are much more heterogeneous, but some of the um, things that we think about uh, in that category are mucocutaneous disease, so um, as I mentioned, monogenic Bechet-like features, um, and then granuloma formation seems to kind of be a, a, a process that's driven by, by this family of diseases as well. So in, in the interferonopathies, um, so just stepping back one stage, the the autoantibodies being present in that disease that's kind of an interesting kind of crosstalk between like the innate system and the adaptive system that you were alluding to up front um how, how do we actually differentiate because maybe i'm seeing a bunch of lupus patients who actually have an interferonopathy um are, are there tools for differentiating you know lupus from an interferon disease the, the main distinction we think about are um, the, the clinical features that make you suspect there might be a monogenic disease. So for example, very early age of onset or multiple affected family members, um, many of these diseases are also uh, autosomal recessive, so consanguinity in the family might point you in that direction. But I do think that within our kind of broad cohorts of, of lupus and, and diseases like that, um, there are probably some individuals who, if, if we sequenced everybody, you can find genetic defects that uh, drive a major part of their disease, if not, if not monogenic, very clearly integral parts of the interferon pathway that, that are probably essential to their disease. 
I think sometimes too, we see people where we kind of label them as both. They ha- as a, for instance, have a sibling who maybe has had a genetic test showing a possibility related. And then a person that I could say really does meet criteria and is acting like SLE, but they have loads of urticaria, say, and lasts for a while. And you kind of wonder, are they um, two sides of one coin or these things co-inherited or what, because they do, some of these people sometimes have a very milder version of lupus and they don't seem to have all the features of their, say their sibling that might have a different diagnosis within that spectrum. Absolutely. And and one of the things we've uh, come across not infrequently is when we take a good, really good family history, we find that, for example, the grandmother was diagnosed as having GPA, but when the family goes back and looks at their skin lesions, it looks exactly like this child who has a monogenic disease. And it, it makes you think that they're being lumped into these categories for lack of a better uh, uh, diagnosis at the time. But um, there's there's a single gene driver that differentiates these individuals from from the bigger picture. We also talk about like cyclic fever syndromes, and are all of these really under that umbrella, or does the cyclic fevers or the periodic fevers does that only apply to some of these categories of disease? And if you can if you can walk me through how you actually use the fever history to differentiate uh, diseases, that would be helpful as well. Initially, before the term autoinflammatory diseases, these were called, as you said, cyclic or, or periodic fever syndromes or, or recurrent fever syndromes. Um, and that just reflects the fact that uh, many of these diseases have high levels of inflammation and that inflammation drives fevers uh, in these patients. And often there's kind of negative feedback mechanisms that shut off the fevers for periods. So they go through these periods where they're inflamed and then it turns off and that gives you the, the periodicity or the, or the recurrence of the fever. Some of these diseases um, don't have uh, fever as a predominant feature, so it's important to be aware of that. Um, And then the most common, at least in pediatrics, the most common periodic fever syndrome is actually not a monogenic uh, inflammatory disease either. It it is felt to be in this auto-inflammatory spectrum, but PFAPA disease or periodic fever, aphthostomatitis, uh, pharyngitis, and cervical adenitis syndrome is not a monogenic disease. And so you can get fever without, uh, recurrent fevers without being able to identify a single gene to point to as well. We think I used to be taught that these were the kids with the periodic sore throats, um, sometimes other family members, big adenopathy. And I think in days gone by, they probably got a lot of antibiotics and got their tonsils out or got their, you know, if someone was smart and said, okay, if you're amoxyl or penicillin doesn't work, next time we'll give you a short course of prednisone. And my understanding is a lot of them grow out of it. So is, is obviously we'd like to make the right diagnosis, but is it, consequential or inconsequential if some of these milder cases don't get diagnosed? So I think that the main consequence of PFAPA is that it's a huge burden for both the child and the family, especially these days where everybody is on red alert about fevers and, you know, people are very quickly sent home from school or daycare. Um, it It is a huge challenge when you're having fevers every three or four weeks. Um, In terms of long-term medical outcomes, um, it doesn't have any long-term sequelae in terms of amyloidosis or or, um, uh, organ damage in in any way. Um, But but 
you know, the, the earlier diagnosis can lead to potentially treatment options that avoid um, a lot of uh, missed activities, missed school, things like that, as well as exposure to unnecessary medications and interventions like uh, constant exposures to antibiotics, which, which I think we're uh, all becoming familiar uh, with as, as being not great during the development of your immune system. And, and can you give us a, a bit of a sense of like, periodicity or duration of fevers and how that maps onto different fever syndromes is is that a fairly useful history tool or is it really not that helpful as you learn about ever expanding groups of uh, auto-inflammatory diseases maybe it's less specific um can you kind of walk me through that yeah, so I will say that the history is is really the vast majority of the work. So if you can get a really good uh, history of what these fevers look like, and often what we do is we actually ask the family to go away with a diary and to keep track of when these fevers come up, the exact days where the fever starts, when the fever stops, and then we can go back and review it. Um, and and to, your, to your question, the, the main points that we're looking at in, this, in that fever diary are, first of all, is there a regularity to the fevers? So uh, some patients, for example, are, are able to time their vacations and their work schedules around when this fever is going to come up. When you see that kind of a pattern, um, it's, it's almost always PFAPA. Um, that's the most predictable uh, fever syndrome. Um, and so that's a huge clue right off the bat um, when, you, when you can pick that up either in a diary or, or just based on the reporting of the patient. Um, other features that we look for are things like the duration of the fever. So um, if it's a very short fever, um, we think about things again like PFAP or FMF. Um, FMF fevers usually don't last more than uh, 72 hours or so. Um, you contrast that with some of the other fever syndromes like TRAP syndrome, for example, um, which has uh, a duration usually in the order of seven days or longer. Um, so again, that can help you to distinguish very quickly between um, various different uh, fevers. So how do we actually go about confirming a suspected autoinflammatory disease? You, you, you have already said that most of the work is done through history, but I'm wondering about kind of investigations or confirmatory genetic tests. And, and what do you do in terms of your general work workup to rule out common mimics of uh, fever syndromes? So I, I think it's uh, on a case-by-case -case basis um, and depending on your degree of suspicion for, for a particular condition. So for something like PFAPA, for example, um, if it's a very clear presentation with the associated features, things like uh, exudative tonsillitis and, and oral ulcers, um, and that periodic uh, uh, fever that I mentioned, you may not need to do much more in terms of investigations. Um, we'll often check some inflammatory markers when they're well, because one of the features of PFAPA syndrome is that everything normalizes when they're well. They shouldn't have any residual inflammation uh, uh, when you do the blood work. Um, but we, we often will not resort to things like genetic testing to rule out other conditions. And in fact, if you look at the Choosing Wisely guidelines, um, one of them is if you, if you have a, a classic presentation of PFAPA, um, that genetic testing is not indicated. In other conditions, um, it really depends on, uh, on the specific syndrome. Some of them do have uh, additional blood tests that you can do, things like uh, urine organic acids in the case of uh, HID syndrome, for example. 
Um, and then ultimately we, we uh, go to genetic testing um, once we have a suspected monogenic disease. And uh, what that usually entails is a, a panel of recurrent fever syndromes um, that we have available here at, uh, at SickKids that um, we, we look for variants in, in particular in the genes that we're suspecting. So I have a question about this, Dylan, because occasionally I want to ask you later about Stills disease, but occasionally I will have a patient that said, okay, my brother and I or something, maybe there's a family member or cousin or something, used to have these fevers as kids, sore throats. So I'm thinking exactly what you were talking about. Who knows? But as an adult, they say, now I'm 28 years old and it started up again. Do, do some do that more than others or I'm barking up the wrong tree? I think the spectrum of PFAP is probably broader than what we uh, give it credit for. There's definitely case reports of um, adult onset PFAP as well as PFAP that persists beyond what we usually expect. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, Janet, the, the, the kind of classic uh, uh, description of this is something that runs its course and resolves by adolescence. Um, but some people definitely persist into adulthood and some people, for whatever reason, turn on during adulthood as well. And then uh, the other point that you brought up is that, um, again, for reasons that we don't completely understand, PFAPA can go into periods of remission as well. Um, so there's probably some environmental uh, factor that, that triggers this, that starts it in the first place, that can sometimes go away and, and allow you to go into a period of quiescence before, again, flaring up perhaps when you're uh, a bit older. We'll be back to Around the Room in a minute after this message from the CRA, who want to let you know about the Adverse Events Video-Based Accredited Learning Program. These modules have been designed for rheumatologists to improve their understanding of adverse events during the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. The resources are available exclusively to CRA members and invited guests on the CRA website. Access to the site is password protected. To receive your password, please contact info at room.ca. This program was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from BMS Canada. An independent CRA scientific planning committee was responsible for the scientific integrity, objectivity, and balance of this content. And now, back to Around the Room. So you started to describe some of the kind of treatment principles in auto-inflammatory diseases. First, you define which category they fit into that you can do with history and physical and labs. Then you try and nail down diagnosis, more specifically with history. Periodically, there's genetic testing that's required. And and then once you actually do have your diagnosis, uh, you kind of gave us a bit of an outline of treatments that we use. I, you know, Janet, you, you, you see patients with this in adulthood. I'm kind of curious, how long are people supposed to be on therapy for before we start withdrawing treatment do people need lifelong treatment? Do the diseases burn out? It's a great question, and I think it's a great point of debate uh, even now. So with PFAPA, because we uh, expect it to hopefully get better with time, um, often if they are on a, on a chronic medication for it, a, a prophylactic medication like colchicine, um, we will either let them outgrow their dose or gradually wean and, and see whether the, the, the disease is there. Um, with the monogenic diseases, you would think that this is something 
uh, you know, part of their constitution, essentially, that, that they would need lifelong medication. But there is this thought that people can go into um, periods of quiescence where you can withdraw the medication and they'll stay well. They obviously still require monitoring to make sure that they don't have uh, uh, subclinical chronic inflammation and that they don't eventually develop flares again. Um, but in diseases like FMF, um, there are patients who are able to go off medication and stay off medication for years, which can be a, a big benefit for them. So when we're looking at that too, I think we also see the transition where say a pediatric um, patient is coming over to the adult side. And as a, for instance, I've gotten two uh, congenital sarcoid patients that were transferred. And of course, the first thing was, I didn't even know what they were talking about. It's like, how, get, how can you be born with it? So I did learn a little bit about the gene and uh, the fevers and what had gone on with the, the kids before. But um, I'm very reluctant to taper when I hear a history, even if it's 10 years ago, where a kid was really sick and the fever was as high as ever recorded. This was usually according to mom, of course, but the fever was as high as ever recorded. And then, the, you know, when one patient went into renal impairment, which is, by the way, totally fine now. I'm also not sure of who's going to get amyloid over time. And I do see some of these, um, the congenital sarcoid kids, they're coming in with megadose TNF inhibitors. And I must say, I, you know, um, looking at up to date isn't sufficient to know how do we treat? Is there a time to lower? And I'm not even really sure of in whom am I worried about secondary amyloid, which can be quite devastating over the next 40 years of their life. And in whom am I not worried? Absolutely. I think it's a huge cha challenge and I think there's a lot of work for us to do in terms of finding suitable biomarkers or suitable predictive factors um, that can kind of help us to, to d define subgroups within this heterogeneous population. Um, I think the tools that you mentioned, you know, looking at the personal history as well as the family history um, can be really useful indicators of how willing you are to, to take a risk. Um, if there's a strong family history of renal disease that, that's felt to be re uh, re responsible or, or that's felt to be due to this disease, um, you, you might be more hesitant to, to withdraw medication. In a patient who seems to be clinically in remission, uh, is it your practice? I, I think you've kind of flicked at this already, but do you continue to monitor inflammatory markers? And are those reliable? So CRP or ESR or ferritin or whatever you're using, are those reliable enough to say that if these markers are normal, this person is not going to go on to develop amyloid? Or do we need to do deeper testing like cytokine panels or, or something else to tell us this disease is not just symptomatically in remission, it's biochemically in remission. And that offers better prognosis in terms of amyloid and, and, and kind of long-term consequences. I'm not totally sure if that question makes sense. But. <laughs> no, I think it does. Um, when, we, when we think about amyloidosis, often um, it's that kind of IL-1, IL-6, and to a lesser extent, the TNF pathways that, that drive this. Um, and as I mentioned, those are really good at um, pr provoking your CRP, essentially. So I, I do find that the CRP is probably a good marker for that. Um, we do uh, measure SAA levels, serum amyloid levels, um, and usually they correlate with the CRP. I'm not sure that they really add too much additional information. Um, and the current 
thinking around this seems to be that if you have a normal CRP and, and a normal serum amyloid level, um, then, then you know, you're not at risk of, of amyloidosis. Um, so, you know, that's not based on any kind of uh, uh, formal trial or anything, but that seems to be the expert uh, consensus. I don't find that the cytokine testing really adds much more than that. Um, so for example, you could measure IL-6 levels, but usually that correlates extremely well with um, our more classic lab features like CRP. And if you do have a normal CRP, but you have an abnormal serum amyloid, is that someone that requires additional kind of more aggressive treatment? Or is the serum amyloid going to significantly fluctuate up and down outside of the CRP or they really should correlate? Yeah, they usually correlate very well. I haven't seen um, huge discrepancies with them. Um, sometimes we get a, a CRP that's completely normal while the serum amyloid is, you know, maybe 100 above the, the uh, normal range or something. Um, we're not really sure what to do that with that. I'm, I don't really tend to jump on it because we don't know what threshold of serum amyloid level actually correlates with the development of amyloidosis. The level and the length of it too, I guess. Um, um, I want to switch gears a little bit because I want to get into treatment shortly, but um, do you think stills, whether it's systemic onset JIA um, and or adult onset, should we be really just recategorizing as auto-inflammatory? It could be monogenic, unlikely, but polygenic. Should should we be recategorizing that? Or are we um, will our understanding of these diseases maybe help us in treatment? No, I think uh, if you ask the um, majority of at least pediatric rheumatologists where uh, systemic JIA is grouped in with these other forms of JIA, um, I think um, the the vast majority will say this is really an entity of its own and it fits more under the auto-inflammatory category. Um, for most of them, as you mentioned, we don't have a single gene that we can point to. There are a couple of exceptions where it's a monogenic form of systemic JIA, um, but the, the treatment uh, looks much more like an auto-inflammatory disease in terms of blocking uh, uh, cytokines like IL-1, for example. So with that in mind, um, would the treatment of, we'll say, whether the kids in the category of what we will, I'll call formerly, where was known as systemic onset JIA, but you're really thinking, okay, this is auto-inflammatory, would it be a prednisone and quite quickly jumping to an IL-1 inhibitor, or would it be doing some steps in between? No, typically we, we're very quick to move to, to IL-1. Uh, sometimes some NSAIDs in, in, in between as well. But I think, you know, the, the days of trying our classic arthritis medications like methotrexate and anti-TNFs for a patient that is clearly in the, in the systemic side are, are past us, uh, thankfully. I think it's more tough when it's an adult. We don't, I think stills is pretty uncommon and that it stills is probably, as you're saying, more than one disease and uh, categorizing as we'll call it an auto, um, adult onset auto-inflammatory. But it's very difficult for, first of all, the diagnosis is difficult for us um, in the adult world if we don't see the rash or don't have a fever description that's classical. But it's also difficult on a treatment because often they're, they're presenting as FUO, maybe even inpatient even, and they're getting loads of glucocorticoids, 
once everything else in a way has been ruled out. And then in order to really get access to drugs, we tend to have to do the algorithm, steroid sparing drug, whether it's methotrexate, then what biologic can I get the fastest access to? And um, it's interesting you mentioned about JAX, and I know it wasn't in this subclass, but you know, sometimes we'd be better are easier to get access to an earlier line therapy than an IL-1 and canukinumab as an, for an adult to get it is almost unheard of. So if they don't respond to Kinerep, we have an issue and we often then go the IL-6 route. So I think we can learn from PD Room to really say, if this is what you think is going on, we should be asking for help and saying, how do we get access quickly, if someone needs it, to some of these what I'll call in our armamentarium, our second or third line advanced therapies, because it's just a way of how we tend to get access more easily to certain drugs. Yeah, I think we, we do face that challenge in pediatrics too. I think the the old models of meeting certain criteria and, and then being able to form a diagnosis, um, it, it's perhaps not the best way to go about things for some of these diseases, um, where you can, even without a a firm textbook diagnosis, you can kind of um, arrive at a treatment option that logically makes sense. And if you were able to to get access to that, uh, save the patient, um, you know, potentially months or years of, of morbidity. Sticking with stills for a moment, um, do you use the phenotype of their disease to decide on the first biologic you're going to, you're going to pick? Do you use a cytokine panel to decide if they're more IL-6 or IL-1? Um, how do you kind of make that first decision? Like, is it about the, how much of it, how systemic it seems, how much arthritis there is, how much rash there is, like what's the predominant form? Or do you just kind of go, IL-1's the, the big one, and if that doesn't work, IL-6. And if that doesn't work, um, hopefully they'll they'll be adult by then, and it's Janet's problem. <laughs> yeah. I think the latter is more more what we do. So typically, we just start with the IL one, and and the majority do respond to that. Mm-hmm. And then if that doesn't work, you move to IL six. The cytokines they, the cytokines talk to each other, so measuring their levels um, isn't usually helpful because IL one will drive IL six production, for example. And then also measuring IL one in itself is extremely difficult. It has a very short half life, um, so uh, it's very rare for us to get whopping levels of IL-1 when we do the testing for it that really points us towards the IL-1 blockade. Interesting. So even if you do a cytokine panel that shows your IL-6 is high, your IL-1 is low, your IL-1 is probably high, and that's why your IL-6 is high. Uh, It's just not picking it up on the test for various reasons. You know, we've done testing on patients who we know have an IL-1-mediated disease because we have a genetic diagnosis in an inflammasome-related gene, and we don't really see the levels of IL-1 that you would think, uh, you know, just knowing the the pathophysiology you would expect to find. That's, That's very interesting. I wanted to switch for a second because um, there was the excellent uh, discussion at the CRA on aphthous ulcers or, you know, chronic and recurrent mucosal ulcers. So should, for the adult docs, should we be thinking about someone with new onset recurrent stomatitis of some sort and maybe urticaria? Should I, should that ring a bell or should that not really? Because sometimes that's a, by the way, a lupus patient or it's none of the above. They're an allergic patient and happen to have sores in their mouth. Um, 
are there sort of things that will help us clinical pearls to kind of put someone into one category or another? Because I don't think I'm going to take the right history because it's really not on my radar screen what happens in these um, kid diseases that I don't think I fully translated into adults. So um, for the most part, we don't see uh, oral ulcers. So in, in the classic ones where we have these oral ulcers, urticaria often isn't actually a feature of it. But, but the bigger picture question I think you're asking is um, when do you call it recurrent idiopathic stomatitis and when do you think it's something beyond that? And I think it's it's really a matter of um, taking that history, find you know full systems review to see if there's any other uh, sites affected, um, and then the family history to see if there's something that's that's traveling around here. Um, but what's interesting about recurrent aphthystomatitis is that um, more recent genetic studies have suggested that it's probably on a spectrum with. PFAPA and Bechette disease, even though it's not a monogenic disease, um, there seem to be um, certain polymorphisms that overlap between these uh, three syndromes. So it clearly has some auto-inflammatory flavor to it, despite not being kind of a classic auto-inflammatory clinic disease. Um, so even the, the run-of-the-mill so-called recurrent idiopathic stomatitis probably has these disease features that that overlap with uh, auto-inflammatory syndromes. So it gets pretty tough, is what you're telling us. It's a, it's a, there's so many, there's so many ones. It kind of um, makes my head hurt, but in a good way. I'm learning, but <laughs> it's, um, it, it is, it's tough. And um, what I find is that literally, it's almost like every month there's a new gene or a, a an alteration of an already described gene, and then there's a little family set. Pub, not little, but a family set published, and then all of a sudden it's like, should I learn this or not? I think it's I, I think it's pretty tough, and this is where coming back to it, I think it would be really helpful to have a PD room, uh, someone who has an interest, be almost like um more than curbside consulting, but helping us in our clinics, and we could batch and collect some of these um, the kids as they transition, but also some of these adults who come in because. Um, I think I, I don't always know their diagnosis, but I think I recognize this more than when I started uh, way back when. And I, maybe there's more awareness, but I think I actually put like round pegs into square uh, areas before. I think I just tried to pigeonhole and especially if they got better, they might have anyway, frankly, but I felt like I had done something successful. Absolutely. I think there's a lot we can learn from from each other. Um, and, you know, when you get into these complex things that are just exploding right now, the more minds and the more eyes you have on your patient um, can can only be helpful. Yes, yeah, so I think that's kind of a, a perfect segue to um, uh, kind of my last question for you, uh, which is what are kind of the, the new hot topics in auto-inflammatory diseases or where's their research taking us these days? It's interesting, as Janet said, um, these new diseases are popping up all the time, and that has almost become run of the mill. Nobody bats an eye if you discover a whole new disease anymore. <laughs> um, so, so now it's really becoming uh, novel ways to to um, find these diseases. So, um, concepts like mosaicism or um, digenic inheritance of of diseases, I think, is um, 
is becoming more uh, recognized and, and particularly in the adult world, I think this has implications for these later onset people. Um, one of the biggest breakthroughs um, in the past couple of years was um, the discovery of Vexus syndrome, um, which is a, an adult onset uh, disease that's caused by somatic mutations in an X-linked gene uh, driving these auto-inflammatory uh, phenotypes. Um, and so I think um, novel ways of looking at these genetics, um, intronic changes, and um, uh, also n uh, pathways that we don't think of classically as immunological, so things like uh, cellular metabolism and uh, actin cytoskeleton and things like that, how they interact with um, inflammatory molecules and, and drive some of these cytokines, I think is going to really um, expand this world of, of auto-inflammatory diseases. You know, how complicated it sounds like it has become in like the deep biology that you're needing to study to understand these diseases. It seems like a bit of a miracle that colchicine <laughs> happens to, <laughs> to work for some of these conditions. Kind of an, an oldie but a goodie. Um, Janet, anything else on your mind? I would just say that there was some buzz at the ACR on um, not really reclassifying gout, but talking about the inflammasome and auto-inflammatory. So would this be a metabolic problem that then looks like um, a febrile? Well, they do have a fever if gout's bad enough. That looks like a syndrome where obviously we know uric acid and other things going on. Or, or are we just trying to, again, um, just make make up a new way of describing gout. I'm not trying to, but are they trying to do that? No, I think, I think there is some evidence to, to uh, lead us to think that way. Um, the urate crystals are actually um, extremely good at turning on the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is that same inflammasome that causes CAP syndrome. Um, and, and that seems to be uh, one of the major uh, mechanisms for, for the the, the disease features of gout is turning on that uh, inflammasome and producing IL-1. Um, so again, it's one of those situations where it's not a monogenic disease, um, but clearly some of these innate immune pathways that we think about in the auto-inflammatory world um, are, are uh, underlying the disease. And, and similarly, um, people are thinking about ankylosing spondylitis in the same way, Crohn's disease, um, some of these much more common uh, diseases that we've been dealing with for a long, long time. Um, it, it's not to say that we've been thinking about them wrong, but I think it's just a different lens to, to look at them, which might lead to different treatment strategies um, uh, that, that complement what we're doing right now. It's actually, it's really, it's an exciting time. And um, I think all the work that you're doing and, and the knowledge that even today you're giving us is really fantastic because I do think it's an unmet need, at least for myself, but probably many other practicing adult rheumatologists. And the world's changing quickly and it might have implications for some things on what we monitor on, you know, amyloid, things like that, but also what the other treatment potentials might be unlocking to help both kids and then some of these uh, somatic mutations in adults. So Dylan, just before we let you go, we, we do want to get to know our guests a little bit better. And uh, we're, we're asking everyone to, to tell us about what book they're reading right now or what TV show they've just gotten into. So any anything on your bedside table or, or on your Netflix account? Yes, I, I just started re reading Homeland Elegies. I'm not sure if you've heard about that. Um, it's a book, um, I believe the author's name was Ayad Akhtar. Um, 
and it's it's been interesting so far. I've just started it, but um, it's it's basically a semi-biographical. I think it's a mix of fiction and non-fiction, and and he's describing his life as as a Muslim in the post 9/11 America um, and and the post-Trump presidency as well. Um, it's, it's been a good read. Um, and I just finished uh, the series by Ken Dryden uh, as well. So. That's great. Well, thanks for the suggestion. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. So thanks for being with us and uh, hope to see you at uh, ACR. Or sorry, I guess ACR is over. CRA. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was great. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at CRASCRroom. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Janet and our guest, Dr. Dylan Disanayake. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fonwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.